You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. I'm excited I get to share the message with you this morning, which is something I haven't done in a while. And uh, it's, it's actually the last message in our springtime sermon uh, series, Major and the Minors, which has been a survey in the, the Minor Prophets from the uh, collection of books, which we call the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. And um, it has been a, a really, really good uh, series so far. In fact, I can just brag on it because I didn't preach any of them yet. So uh, the other pastors have have just guided us through to uh, you know, teach us really important things from the Minor Prophets. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but before I begin, I want to share a, a story with you. Um, I remember one time I was on a date. Cool, right? Pretty cool. It was with Chris Lynn. So it's even cooler. Um, and on this date, we went out to... Uh, dinner someplace. I don't remember where because it was a long time ago. Uh, unfortunately, though, I was fairly distracted on this date, and it's not because they were playing sports on the TVs, um, although if there is sports on TV in a restaurant, I am distracted because I don't have real TV, so it's, uh, it's easy for me to get distracted in general, I suppose. But anyways, that wasn't why I was uh, kind of distracted. It's because as my uh, beautiful wife sat across from me, just over her shoulder and to the right, uh, there was another couple at the restaurant who were not having a nice time like we were having. Uh, in fact, they were having some kind of argument, some kind of debate. I would even call it a fight. Uh, they weren't yelling or anything, but there was conflict. And so being the person that I am, I'm sitting there trying to enjoy my date, but I'm really distracted by what was going on over there, worried about it, because it seemed like the relationship might be over by the time the appetizers came out, if you know what I mean. So it was distracting for me. So why do I bring this up? Is it because Moxie's is not the best place to break up with someone? Yes. <laughs> Although if you have to, that's, yeah, I understand. Uh, sometimes that's just how it is, but uh, well, the real reason I bring this funny little memory up is because as we go into the book of Malachi, it feels somewhat like what I've just described. There is an argument happening. It's between two parties, and, and as readers, we have a front row seat to the argument, the discussion, as it were, except it's not between uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend, it's between uh, a parent and his children. It's between God the Father and the children of Israel. Um, and as we read uh, this, or as we hear, um, the fight is between a father and his entitled uh, children. And so it's a little awkward but it's very interesting, and there's a lot that we can learn from it as we go. Um, but speaking of memories, uh, raise your hand if you do remember all the way back to 2016. I think the end of 2016 it was that here at the gate, we did go through the book of Malachi as a sermon series. Does anybody else remember that? Uh, the pastors do. Good job, guys. Um, <laughs> a few people. 
And I remember it, I actually remember it well. I do not have a good memory, but I remember going through Malachi because I learned a lot. It meant so much to me as we went through the book slowly and learned about it and heard the truth of God's word through this prophet. It truly changed my life. That was 2016. Another thing that changed my life was three years later. Uh, the Lord blessed our family with our third born. And so we named our third born son, Malachi, who I have photos of. Um, my daughter took these pictures on my phone, which is normal, I suppose. But uh, there he is. He's four and a half now. So he is in Kidsgate. I think if he was upstairs, he would be humiliated that I was uh, maybe talking about him so much. So it's probably a good thing. I actually didn't tell him that I was preaching on Malachi this morning because the thing about Malachi is you have to explain thoroughly everything. So this would be a very long conversation about exactly what I was going to do as I preached about the book. So we love our son, Malachi, but I do love the book of Malachi. Um, so the name Malachi literally means messenger of God or simply my messenger. And so this is as much a title as it is a name. Um, we don't know anything about the prophet Malachi, about his life or who he was, other than that he was faithful in delivering this message to God's people. Um, the timeline of this book is around 400 years before Christ was born. So we're, we're dropping into approximately the same context uh, that Pastor Brad preached from Haggai last week, a little bit later though, because if you were with us last week, you heard the word of the Lord for those people was, listen, stop spending all your time and money making nice houses for yourself while the Lord's house is in shambles. Uh, how about you get to work on the temple, my dwelling place, right? That was what God was saying to his children. And as Brad said, they listened. It was awesome. They listened because in Malachi, it seems that there is a temple for them to uh, do worship in and, and experience the presence of God in the right way there. And so um, that's the good part. But the, pro the problem persists, though, between the disconnect between them and their relationship with God. Uh, they have returned from exile in Babylon, which is a great thing but it would seem that they have not returned to the Lord, as it were. So um, this is a little bit of the context of where the book was written. Um, it is the last book in the New Testament, and rightfully so, uh, because on the timeline, 400 years before Christ is about as late as you get before Jesus uh, comes in the New Testament. So Israel has returned from exile they're rebuilding their life, uh, but they have not necessarily returned to the Lord. Uh, so we're going to dwell, I want to dwell mostly on Malachi 1, uh, 1 and 2. And, and it's not because I didn't read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I did. But if you've only got time, if you just read these two verses, you'd be doing okay. But having said that, Malachi is such a short book, um, as we've said over and over. Uh, please do read uh, the whole book. Uh, but Malachi 1, uh, verse 2 in particular, fascinates me because as we begin, um, we hear the word of the Lord say, the most significant thing that you could ever hear anybody say, let alone God himself. 
So I'm going to slowly read in a few pieces Malachi 1 verse 2. But the beginning of Malachi 1 2 is literally the good news in five words or less. Hear this. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you, says the Lord. So the conversation in Malachi starts out on the right foot, doesn't it? God blesses his people with the reminder of his love. He could have began the prophecy with anything that he wanted that was, was true. He could have said, I've protected you, or I've disciplined you, or I'm angry with you, or I've provided for you, or I dwell with you, I've taught you. There's all these things that God could say and would be right in saying, but the prophet speaks for God to the people first about God's love. As we continue in the verse, we see the issue with Israel is that they do not respond to this statement by saying, yay, God loves us. This is awesome. Let's write a worship song about it and celebrate. Not this time. That's not how they respond. God tells them he loves them, and their response is not celebration and joy, not even indifference, but they reply with an accusation. So reading from verse 2 again, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? And so shots are fired. <laughs> and the, the argument begins. I've loved you, says the Lord. Really? How, God? How have you loved us? How exactly have you loved us? And so you can see how they begin to sound like that kind of entitled child that I referred to. And it goes back and forth for the rest of the book where, where God says one thing and then basically over and over, belligerently, the people say, really, God, how? You can't be serious, God. They throw it back at him. They demand proof of God's goodness. They keep defending their own poor choices and putting God on trial. But to the first and most important accusation, which is, really, God, do you love us? Which is a rhetorical question. Uh, God responds in an interesting way. He, he reminds them of their history, the history of Israel, which is a, a common response from God in Scripture to look to the past. So again, from verse 2, the whole verse this time, I've loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I've loved Jacob. So to us, this sounds like a random thing to say. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, I don't get it. I remember uh, my grandma had all these sayings where you'd like say something to her and then she'd be like, Oh, that's like a, calling, a, a kettle calling a pot black or whatever. Like, that's one of them. But they were weirder than that. And you'd always be like, what? <laughs> and then she'd, you know, in plain English respond. But this is kind of like that to us. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Well, I don't know, I guess. But between Jacob and Esau, you see God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. If you read verse 3, you'll hear something in your translation. It'll probably say that God says, I have hated Esau which simply means that he did not choose Esau. 
It's not the kind of hatred that we think of when we hear the word hate, but it means I didn't choose Esau, I chose Jacob. And we've learned in this series about the ongoing relationship between Israel and Esau through the nation of Edom and how Edom has bullied Israel. They've been wicked and they've oppressed them. And to that, God says in Malachi, that's not going to be forever. In fact, I will wipe them out, but you will remain. You'll be blessed. You are my people who I love. So, as God asserts his love for Israel, and they say, how so? God points to their past, and he speaks to their present as well. says, I still love you, and I'm going to love you. I'm going to choose you going forward. I did choose you, and I always will. That's because when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Amen? So this is just the beginning of the book, and the rest of the book cycles through about six more accusations, problems that either God has with Israel or or that they have with them, depending on how you look at it. Uh, But the prophet points them out. He speaks to Israel's leaders and how they've become corrupt, their religious leaders, for their bad practices of worship. It's half-hearted. They have a fake repentance, right? They weep and cry, but in the next breath, they're complaining against God. Simultaneously, um, they're dishonest with their offerings. They, they bring God uh, sacrifices that are no sacrifice to make. They basically bring uh, their, their garbage to God. You know how we got those compost bins in Lethbridge, those little things that you put your organic waste in? Imagine if we brought offerings to church and you brought that and was like, there you go. Uh, that's kind of what they've been doing. Or, or they steal things and they bring it as an offering. Stuff like that. It's crazy. It's not okay. More so, their relationships are dissolving, right? Between husband and wife, God says, you're abandoning each other, treating each other horribly. You speak harshly against God's name and other things too. So there's, there's these problems that are evident that the, the prophet is speaking to. But what's clear to me that I want to highlight to us this morning as we read a book like this one is how a lot of bad things occur when the first and most important thing is compromised. There are so many errors that will happen when we reject God's love for us but continue to attempt to live in a way that's going to please Him or or be righteous or however you want to phrase that, or even if we don't, the relational disconnect between God and His people produces bad fruit, bad results. This is where the people are at in the book of Malachi. Uh, Theologian David Baker says... This, he says, when duty replaces devotion, human nature is such that it seeks minimum steps, barely enough to meet an obligation. And this contrasts a true love relationship, which seeks to do the maximum for the beloved. When duty replaces devotion, 
we seek to fulfill the minimum, barely enough to meet an obligation, and this contrasts true love. And, and this applies to God as much as it does to human relationships as well, right? If you are married and you've made a commitment to your spouse, but that commitment is simply a legal, an, an obligation that you have, and you don't love your spouse, you're only meeting the bare minimum, then, then your marriage is nothing, and it'll likely fall apart. But the prophet's speaking as well to the heart of the people, to God, the disconnect between them and God, the love that they don't have reciprocating the love that God's given them. And of course, this problem persists with us as we live in our lives, as we love the Lord. We are prone to respond to God's love with doubt, uh, even with accusations against him of not loving us. Um, So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, but the last book in the New Testament addresses the same problem. I was reminded of of the Apostle John's word in Revelation chapter 2 where he speaks to the church of Ephesus. He says, I know that you've persevered. This is God speaking to them. I know that you've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. Great. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, performance isn't necessarily the issue. I mean, it's good if you try to do good and do your best and all that stuff. In fact, we appreciate that you do. But for God... Our works are far less important than the love that we have for him. And if we don't love him while we do the works, then we're going down the wrong path. I think too often when we think of repentance, we think of just, well, like, my, the bad behaviors that I need to change. And yeah, you've got to change that stuff. But for the Ephesians, the repentance is not so much those things, it's the lack of love. That's the repentance that John is calling to that, or that God is calling to that church for in Revelation. So I read this partly just to show us how the problem of the uh, people of God in the book of Malachi persists all the way through, even, you know, beyond Jesus into the Christian church. We're still prone to forget or grow cold or push away the love that we are to have for God. But do you know what's amazing? God's love for his people is more persistent than our failures. God's love for us is not contingent upon our love for him. He calls us to love him, but that doesn't change if he loves us. And we need to be reminded of that because in human, you know, in our world, none of us are perfect in our love, and sometimes that's not how it works. But with God, that's the way it is. His love for us is deeper. It's more persistent than our shortcomings In fact, even while his children are arguing and accusing God of all these things in Malachi, the prophet gives promises of salvation to the people, which is amazing. But it shows the love of the father for his children. 
To this, I wanted to read um, all of chapter 4 in Malachi. This kind of summarizes the book, and it also is a launching place into the New Testament, frankly. So, Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, declares the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The day of the Lord is a theme that we've also learned about in this series, and it's a theme that recurs through different parts of Scripture. And I wanted to read from Jeremiah 31 as well, because it frames what Malachi has just said so perfectly. In Jeremiah, it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke even though I am their master. (laughs) The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So as the day of the Lord approaches, there is this beautiful promise for those who love God to be saved. Yes, God will one day destroy evil and wickedness from his creation once and for all, which is part of the good news. But in the meantime, the call for his children is to quit our rebellion against our Father. Stop running away from him to destruction, but run to him and be saved. But how does this happen? How do we do this? How will God accomplish the promise that he makes in Malachi to save and bless his people? Because honestly, as we've read the minor prophets, they've begun to sound somewhat like a broken record, haven't they? Repent and return. Repent and return. Repent and return to God. Over and over. And they do for a while sometimes. But it is a cycle. 
and it seems as if they can't quite make it click. The reality is that the people can't create the solution to the problem. We can't create our own solution to this problem of rebellion against God. In fact, we never could. Right? Even Israel's best attempts, when they were doing well, it seemed that they were on the way back down again. Because of this, it seems like their salvation was never meant to be a result of their own perfection, but of God's grace for them, of God's covenant over them. And we're the same as them today. We are simply incapable to be perfect on our own, to live in a way which 100%, you know, uh, is righteous before the Lord. So again, what is the solution to this dynamic between us and God? How can we respond to God's love? Well, from our current perspective on the Scripture, as, as I've said many times already, we have what we call the Old Testament, which is the books leading up to Jesus. And so that's where we're at this morning. And we can hear Malachi in chapter 4 saying, listen, God promises that a sun will rise with healing in its rays. On the day of the Lord, you're going to be running around like calves in the spring. We know what that is. We love to see it driving in the country, right? The happiest thing that you can picture. They're so happy they look silly. <laughs> running around with joy. The prophet says that our hearts, our relationships will be made right again. Parents to children. God's going to heal these things. And how will he do it? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say that the answer is Jesus. Amen? The answer is Jesus. Right? We believe that the promise of Malachi and every other prophecy is pointing forward to that stable in Bethlehem a few centuries later than Malachi where the Messiah, the Son of God, came and was born. That is our hope for right living, for correct response in love to God and also to each other. It's in Jesus. And so as I thought of this, it, it was incredible to me that Malachi 1 verse 2 and the most famous verse in the whole Bible begin the same way, that God loves us. John 3, 16 and 17, for God loved the world. God loved the world. Really, God, how have you loved us? <laughs> he loved it in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. You 
If you've never heard somebody tell you that God loves you before, this is me telling you. He loves you. He has loved you. He loves you now, and he will love you. That's the truth. And we all respond a little differently to this truth, don't we? At many times, myself included, we respond like the Israelites did when we hear God say he loves us. We say, really? Really, God? How exactly? How has God loved me? Or how could God love me? And for whatever reason you might think that God does not or could not or has not or will not love you, the truth is found in those precious verses which says God loved you in this way. He gave his one and only son. That's what he's done. So that as you believe in him, you won't perish. You'll have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you. So how has God loved you? This is how. That's how. And it's amazing. As we think about this, and if we're going back to Malachi, it almost seems unfair, right? Like, they don't deserve that first statement from God that he loves them. They certainly haven't earned it, right? As you go through and hear all the things that they're doing quite horribly, they haven't earned his love. They don't deserve it, and neither do we. But God gives it anyway because he promised it, right? He promised it long before I ever existed, and that promise remains for eternity. The even more amazing part is that he promised to save us knowing full well that some of us, in different ways, would reject it, that we would doubt it. We would turn from it and throw it back at him. That doesn't change that he promised to love us. Even more, this love, of course, would cost him. It's a free gift for us, but it cost him everything. It cost him the, the life of his own son on the cross, which reminds me of Isaiah 53 because this describes it perfectly. But he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed for his wounds, by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Do you see how unfair it is? How much grace has been given to you, to me? Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. So this is the solution. This is the answer to what we've heard again and again in the Minor Prophets, that overarching theme, repent and return to the Lord. This is the theme that remains for us today. It's the same. But in Jesus, God has come to us. He's come to speak the truth to us with human lips, to show us the way that we should go, what it means to live and love and forgive to live in the kingdom, 
and all these things. So in concluding the message for Malachi this morning, but also the, the series in the Minor Prophets, the call is um, simple but profound. And it is to receive the gift of love that God has given to you through Jesus, to receive it. How do we return to God? By receiving his love. And all the other things that we have to sort out, God will sort them out with us. But it begins with his love for us and us responding. So wherever you are, whoever you are, return to the God who created you, who loves you, who loved you long before to send Jesus to save us. Even while we were running the other way, right? Even while we rejected him and despised his name and made a mess of things. God's plan was to come down to save us, to be with us, for Jesus to be like us, except perfect. Perfect in his relationship to God the Father, perfect in his relationship to us. And because of all this, it means that we're welcomed to call God our Father, regardless of what we've done, to worship him, to receive his love and grace, and to know him today and also on that day of the Lord that he's promised in his return. So this is how he loved us in Jesus. So receive his love here and now this morning.